book of Romans, chapter 6. In 1865, on, I believe it was December 18th, Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, the amendment, 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution. So the Emancipation Proclamation is signed. And it had a strong effect on our country. It meant the freedom of people that had been bound in slavery. It meant a massive change for many people. But the truth is, it didn't mean freedom for everyone. Some masters hid the truth of the 13th Amendment. And as a result, what happened? Some people continued in slavery while free. Others distorted the truth about it. And some of the slaves simply found it too hard to believe. And chose to stay in slavery. Though they were legally free. Because Abraham Lincoln and a number of his uh, compadres had won a victory. Some enjoyed that victory. And some did not. Same thing is true in the Christian life. Victory leads to freedom. Jesus Christ was victorious over sin and death and hell. And won for us a victory. That victory that Jesus Christ won for us means freedom. And it means that in your Christian life today. He accomplished something on the cross. And through his resurrection, something that should affect our identity, that should affect as a result of that change and understanding of our identity change, it should affect how we live our daily lives. Here's the question that many people will ask. Is it possible to experience true life change? I mean, to experience true freedom in Christ, to really experience victory over difficult areas and habits. Is it possible to see stubborn patterns of sin that have lasted for years, that have led to great regret and great sorrow? Is it possible to experience freedom and victory in and through Jesus Christ? Romans chapter 6 is a chapter that ultimately is about freedom. It's what it's like to be new in Christ, redeemed by the victory that he has accomplished, applying that to your life and living truly free. I want us to read through verses 1 through 14 of Romans 6. And I want you to think of this in terms of moving from this idea that many of us live with, enduring the Christian life, a struggle to moving to a place of victory where we enjoy our experience in Christ. Coming off of chapter 5 that is all about justification by grace through faith in Christ and the freedom that we now have, Paul in verse 1 then floats out a question. We don't know if he's responding to people that are present in Rome within the church or if he's kind of anticipating a reaction to grace that is so free, abundant, and amazing. Here's what he says. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? 
We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ rose from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live in new life. So what is Paul doing? He's tying together or drawing a strong connection between death and resurrection. In Christ, one assumes and leads to the other. Victory. Verse 5. If we have been united with him like this in death, we certainly also will be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body of sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ... We believe that we will also live with him. Now, what is he doing? He's tying together the victory through the death of Christ to the victory through the resurrection of Christ. We believe we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery, control, power, authority over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all people, for all time. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God. Notice again the connection. Death leading to life. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, like Christ. Therefore, offer the parts of your body to Him as instruments of righteousness. For sin will not be your master. For you are not under the law, but under grace. So this is a passage of Scripture that wrestles with the idea of what it is to be new in Christ, what it is to die with Christ and then to be alive in Christ, to have the old person taken away and a new person emerging. That's what this text is about. Really, it follows on this doctrine of justification, the change in our status before God, our position, and then it talks about our progress in Christ, our sanctification, the, the, the design of God by which we move from grace to grace, where, by which we find ourselves more and more free from sin and enjoying the victory that Jesus Christ has given so that we are increasingly free. Now, here's what I want to do real quick. I want you to turn ahead to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Just go ahead one book to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I want to look at a case study asking the question, is real change possible? Okay, is real change possible? Because I think that's the question that we find many people struggle with. I think it's why in most uh, bookstores, the self-help section tends to be the biggest part of the bookstore. Why? People know they have a need. People want to change. But they lack the power to change. They lack victory that leads to freedom. And the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6 to a church that has struggled deeply. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, he says, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, or homosexual offenders, or thieves, nor the greedy, 
nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. Okay? So what's the connection? These people in Corinth have a past life that the power of God delivered and freed them from. There were people there that, as Paul wrote, he could think through the names of people sitting in the church and identify specific people who had experienced this kind of a radical change. That's what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. That is in union with Him and by the Spirit of our God. So what, what is amazing as you read through then this little text in 1 Corinthians 6, you find a reflection of Romans chapter 6. You just find it in more detail. That those who had been affected by the work of God in Christ, in Corinth, they were changed people. They were now free. They had a past that no longer had a stranglehold on them spiritually and emotionally and personally. They were free. And so... Paul, in this, kind of is, is, is identifying a miracle of grace. God has moved into these people's lives. God has brought about a radical change. They are really and truly free. But I think often, like many of the slaves, we live in disbelief of such a wonderful proclamation that we are really free. And Satan is, is good at, at propaganda, at distorting the truth, about, about at altering it. Among some of the slave owners, there was always this discussion. We can keep these slaves longer if we just distort what the 13th Amendment really means. And so some were held in slavery, even though they were free, because of a distortion of the truth. That this freedom isn't really an absolute freedom. Now, in verse 1, what does Paul do? In verse 1, Paul poses a question. In light of this amazing grace that he talks about in verse 20 through 21 of chapter 5, and then the whole of chapters 1 through 5 of Romans, he poses a question. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? And Paul's response is, by no means we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And really, here's the question that Paul's asking, isn't he? If salvation is a gift from God by an amazing grace to which we contribute nothing, we don't, we don't participate in this change. That change is a miracle of new birth. It is to be born from above. And it's by grace, it's free, it's gratis. And we, we, we push that envelope, right, with people. We, we're seeking to convince them of how marvelous and amazing and life-changing the grace of God really is. Is there a danger in that? And I think in a sense, what is Paul doing? Paul's anticipating the fact that some people will strive to abuse the grace of God to say, and think through this conclusion. If forgiveness is free, and if it is so abundant, then if I sin, I'm giving an opportunity for grace to be more magnified through my life. Now, I understand it's a distortion, but there were some who thought along those lines. It, it, it's not a Christian distortion of the truth. I believe it's an unbelieving distortion of the truth. But it's one that was present in the church. And some people in the church were wrestling with this. What is it? it it's, a, uh, it's a cheap grace. It, it wasn't really costly. It doesn't really change you. And the result for some was a spiritual lawlessness, or if I can say it this way, a carelessness about sin, a lack of concern for moral purity. 
Because, well, I mean, if I sin, I could just pray and ask God to forgive me, right? Yes. But if I continue in sin, it indicates that there's probably a deeper issue that's present in my life. Okay, so there's, there's a, a, a balance that Paul is, is seeking to strike here. And, and I'll say this to you. If when you're presenting the gospel of God's grace to people, at some point along the way, when you're really pushing on the freeness and magnificence and amazing nature of God's grace, if at some point people don't say, hey, wait, 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 are you saying that someone like X, Y, or Z could be saved if they repented and trusted Christ? I was thinking this week of the man out in Cleveland that kidnapped those three girls, held them hostage. I guarantee you, as you push the gospel of grace and say, you know what, God can forgive anyone. That today people are going to say, I think that man's name was Manuel. They're going to say, wait, are you saying that someone like Manuel can be forgiven? And what's the biblical answer? Yes. That's how great the work of Christ on the cross is. That's how complete his shed blood is in terms of its power to forgive. So as you push the true gospel of grace, it's open to abuse. Yes. But you can't water down and weaken the nature of amazing grace, make it less amazing as a means of trying to protect it because you distort it. And Paul's concern is that in, in the context of Rome, there were some that were distorting this grace of God. And in the end, they created a weak grace, a grace that couldn't really change people. I mean, really, truly free them. And yet that is the grace that Paul is talking about here. A grace that defeats sin and truly changes us. So then in verse 2, here's Paul's answer. By no means. Some translations say this. No, no, or certainly not. Or what a ghastly thought. That some would think that because grace is so amazing that we can sin and in that sin magnify grace. Paul says, may that never be. And, and, and his logic then moves in verse 2 to something like this. By no means, we died to sin. How could we live in it any longer? All right, so what's Paul's argument? In coming to Christ, our, our old person was crucified, died. And a new person came to life. So the old self that was enticed by sin and attracted to sin has experienced something radical and dramatic. It's a change of identity. That old self has died and a new self is emerging. So the, the kind of the thrust of the argument that Paul is giving you here is dead people don't sin. Now I'm going to clarify what that means. Okay, but someone who has died to sin doesn't continue to live in sin as the normal habit of their life. That's the argument that Paul is making. And of the church, what is he saying? We died to sin. We can't. And how's he say it? If you've died to sin in verse 2, we can't live in it any longer. And the idea of live is a verb that's in the present tense, talks about a habitual practice. Okay, if I've died to sin and its power, what has happened? I can no longer walk in sin as the norm of my life. Okay, it's not the dominant pattern of the life of a believer. Because God has brought about, by His amazing grace, an amazing change. So the answer to Paul's question, shall we continue in sin? Paul's response is, no way, dead people can't sin. It is impossible, I think Paul is saying, for a believer to continue living in a pattern of sin. Now, verse 3 then makes an interesting statement as it starts. He says, or don't you know? 
Okay? And then if you go down to verse 9, Paul says, For we know. Okay, now what is Paul doing? Okay, and I think here's where the struggle is for many of us as believers. Paul believes that the struggle with sin for many Christians is an issue of what they know to be true about themselves as new people in Christ. There is, for many believers, a deficient knowledge of who they are in and by the power of God in Christ. And so we live under the fear of a lie. We live under, under a, a, a false assumption that we're free, but not really free. I mean, Christian living can't be that good and that dramatic of a change, right? And so we have a, a kind of, from the evil one, I think a watered-down view of who we are in Christ. And, and in a sense, what is Paul going to do here? Paul's going to give a corrective, a tweaking of, their, of the understanding of their identity in Christ as believers, It's going to give them a clearer picture of who they are. And to do that, he says, don't you know? And what is is true here? What's true here is Satan is like a slave master. You have been freed from your sin, but what does Satan say? You know what? You're free, but you're not really free. You really can't overcome that struggle. You can't experience full victory. Why? Because he's a liar and the father of it. So he comes to kill and destroy, right? So he continues to water down the truth about the level of and degree of freedom that we have in Christ. Truly free. Jesus said this. He said, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And so in Romans 6, what is Paul doing? Paul is kind of giving us a a, a redefinition, a new understanding of our position in Christ, of how we in the gospel have been changed. Because what you believe about who you are in Christ matters. Okay, and let me just kind of see if I could say it in this way. As Christians, we don't strive to be new in Christ. We don't live for a new identity. We live out of our new identity in Christ. We're not trying to become Christians. We're Christians who are trying to live out the Christian life. Okay, so we're not working for salvation. We're living out of salvation that has already come to us, right? That's why Paul says, you were dead. Now you're alive. You're a new creation in Christ. Don't let Satan water that down. Don't let him and don't let other Christians or so-called Christians water it down and make it an issue of effort. It's not all about effort. It's about God. It's about Christ and what he has done in our lives. So what Paul argues then in this text is about our twofold identity in Christ. And he's going to argue in two ways. We are dead to sin in Christ and we are free from sin in Christ or we're alive, we're awakened. Okay, so we're dead to sin and we're also in Christ free from sin. All of this via our union or connection with Christ. So now look at what it says as you go on in verse 3. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might live a new life. Now, what I want you to notice is this. In verses 1 through 14 of this chapter, the idea of being in Christ, with Him, and in Him is used nine times in 14 verses. 
Okay? This text then fundamentally is not about what, it's about who. Does that make sense? This text isn't about what you do, it's about who you know in Christ. Okay, and that, that, that is the overwhelming emphasis of this. Paul wants us to find and be grounded in a new identity in Jesus Christ. So, we are dead to sin through union with Christ. So, in verse 3, the Apostle Paul can talk about us uh, being baptized into his death. That is, united with it. In verse 4, he can talk us about us being buried with him into death. In verse 5, he can say we have been united with him in the likeness of his death. And then in verse 6, he can say, for we know that our old self was crucified with him. And this is a a picture that Paul will pick up when you get into the book of Galatians 2 and verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. And what is he talking about? A past experience when he came to faith and repentance in Christ that has changed his life. Okay, and that's the, the, if you will, the the thrust or the the picture here. Okay, now what does it mean to be dead to sin? Okay, what does it mean to be dead to sin? Is that talking about Christian perfectionism? Okay, that that Christians, all right, Phil's a newer Christian, that Phil has come to a place where he he just no longer, sin just doesn't happen. He's perfect. Okay, and if that's true, Phil should go to start his own church. Right? And have one person attend it and don't ever invite anybody else to come. Right? Because nobody could relate to that person, right? It, 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 what does it mean to be dead? Because that's what it says. There's, there's something that has changed. And the idea here is, is to be free in this death from what? From the ruling power of sin. From it as the dominating factor in our lives. From its controlling power. Before Christ, you couldn't help but sin. In Christ, what happens? We have, we've died in a sense, but we've also been given new life in Christ. So in verse 6, Paul kind of helps us to understand this. Notice, notice how he says this. I think this is, is, is neat. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be, and what's the word he introduces here? Slaves to sin. So there's a connection. When we were without Christ, we were dead in trespasses and sin. We were slaves to sin. When we die in Christ, what happens? We're no longer slaves to sin. We've died to sin as a ruling authority. As a controlling authority in our lives. Okay? And it's important that we understand it. How did that happen? Well, it happened because in coming to faith in Christ, we are united with Christ so that His death on the cross to sin becomes our death to sin. And His resurrection life and power becomes our resurrection life and power. Okay, that is what's given to us in and through the gospel. So if sin is no longer our slave master, who is? Well, if you're in Christ, Christ has become your new master. Right? Your new Lord, your new Savior. And He, by the power of the Spirit, is the controlling influence, power, and authority in your life. So, what does it mean? And here's what it means. 
that we're dead to sin. We are free from sin's ruling and ruining power. Okay? From its ruling, dominating, and destroying. All right, why? Because Christ has given us a victory. All right, what doesn't it mean? It, it, well, what does it mean? Let me say it this way. It means that we are able in Christ not to sin. Okay, and that's a truth that what, what, what do we, sometimes what do we do? We tend to live in this pessimism. Oh, you know what, Christians, we sin. Okay, but here's the way we really should say it. When you face the temptation, I am able to not do this in the name of Christ. Does, does that make sense? Yes. So, so that we don't live with, yes, do Christians sin? Yes. Do they have to? No. They, they can, we can have victory through Christ. And I think the evil one wants to water that down and steal that from you by obstructing it or by confusing it or distorting it. And what does the Spirit of God do? He comes to proclaim that truth to you. I think another way that we could say it is this. If you have truly trusted Christ, here's what you're going to find. You're going to find not just regret, but that you are simply uncomfortable with sin. Because you have been raised and brought in newness in Christ. In salvation, we are free from the guilt of sin and the power of sin. But we are not free from temptation to sin. Right? So we can find Jesus praying for Peter. Peter, Satan has desired to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you. Do you see? So temptation is going to be there. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation is taking you. Temptation is what? It's going to come. It's common to man. But God is faithful. Okay? So first thing we need to know is that in Christ, that the appeal of sin has suffered a dramatic and serious blow. We are dead to the ruling power of it. But the text continues to tie together the death of Christ with the resurrection of Christ. They are truths that go together. And when you are united with Christ through the work of the Spirit of God, you enjoy the blessing and benefit of both. In His death, He defeated sin. In His resurrection, He gives you the power to live victoriously. He sets you free. I think of the story of Lazarus, right? Lazarus comes out of the grave. He's wrapped in his grave clothes. What is he? He's alive. He was dead, but he's alive. What does Jesus say? Unloose him. <laughs> and, and what do we need to do as Christians? Sometimes we need to realize well, you're alive, but you need, to, you need to be loosed. You need to be freed. Lazarus was truly alive, but he was bound. And what does Jesus say? In an analogy, free him. He's not a dead man. He is a new man. Walking. In verses 4 through 7, then the emphasis is that we are new, we are free, and alive in Christ. There has been, in the gospel, an impartation of the life of Christ. And this is the, kind of the thrust that Paul's going after. You're new. Christ, by the power of the Spirit, has come and taken up residence in your life. How is that pictured in the Bible? Okay, how is this change from death to life pictured? It's pictured in the picture of baptism. And the baptism that's talked about here, I believe, moves in two directions. 
All right, there's a baptism that is water baptism. That's a clear picture of what Christ did. He died on the cross, he was buried, and he rose again the third day. We as believers are united with him in that work. That death to sin, that rising to victory and freedom and new life, that's our blessing in Christ. And God wants us to enjoy that. So in baptism, which is an important symbol, what's it saying? This person who is being baptized has professed faith in Christ and experienced some degree of change or transformation. They died and now they're alive. He's changed them. And the waters of baptism are a proclamation. Sin is washed away. This person comes up out of the water free. So what is baptism? It's a water grave. The old is gone. The new has come. Okay, that's, the, that's the, the picture or the analogy that Paul uses to kind of tie together this truth of death and life. All right, a new person is coming forth with new authority, with new power, with a new identity in Christ and with a new freedom in Christ. Therefore, baptism is important. It is commanded because it is the proclamation of what? Our fundamental new and radical identity in Christ. Okay, and, and, and this is, Paul has, has, for some reason, just has this desire to press on this truth that the old is gone and the new has come. Now, in Titus chapter 3, you find the Apostle Paul making a connection between this rising in new life and the work of the Spirit who does for us spiritually what water baptism does for us physically, right? Water baptism for us physically pictures this new person emerging, this washing, dying, coming up clean and new and powerful, right? And the Spirit of God is the one who actually does that at the moment of regeneration. Listen to what Titus 3 and verse 4 and following says. It says, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior, Jesus, appeared, He saved us. He freed us. Not because of righteous things that we had done, not self-salvation, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth. And listen to this. The washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Now all of a sudden you see the connection. Right? Between this spirit baptism and water baptism. Both are a picture. One is the reality, spirit baptism. That's the reality. You're made new in Christ. Water baptism later becomes what? a picture of that reality. In the Bible, they're closely tied together because they have a vital connection. That person that went into the waters of baptism was saying, in Jesus, I have a new identity. I am a new person. I am a new creation. So baptism in this context is important. Now, if you're alive in Christ, what does Satan want you to think? Okay, He wants to think you're dead. All right, He wants to think you're weak. You're spiritually anemic. Here's what Jesus said in response to the lives of Satan. Jesus says, I have come that you may have life and that you may have it abundantly. Why? Because the enemy comes to kill and destroy. He comes to destroy everything that God is seeking to do. And what's the Apostle Paul doing here? The Apostle Paul is fighting back against the lie of cheap grace and weak grace. Grace that doesn't really forgive. It doesn't really transform. It doesn't really change. It doesn't really free. What is he saying? That's not true. Because in Christ you have become a new creation. The old is gone and the new has in fact come. 
When you came to faith in Christ, if you have trusted him, you did not receive a better life than you had before. You received a new life. Okay, and we need to think about that and ponder that. And what are the ramifications of that in my daily experience? One writer said it this way. He said, sometimes Christians walk in victory. And I think most of us would say, okay, that's accurate. And then he says this. He says, sometimes we are stumbling upward. Sometimes we are stumbling upward. Okay, we, we and here, here's what most of us think. Is this normal? Are other Christians experiencing this? I think this is what Paul's saying. You're free from sin. You're, you're, you're free from the ruling and dominating power of it, but you still wrestle with temptation. You're seeking to work out this new life and experience in, in Christ. And so in verse 7, what, is, what does Paul want us to know? In verse 7, Paul wants us to know this. He says, anyone who has died in this way in Christ has been what? Freed from sin. Meaning as a ruling Dictating, dominating power, you have been free. Okay, so that's what Paul wants you to know. Verse 14, the end of the text, listen to what he says. He says, sin shall not be your master because you are under law and not under grace. Sin shall be your master. Okay, so you go back to the analogy of slavery. What happened? There was a proclamation of freedom and emancipation of people that were held in bondage. Some got it, some didn't. Some knew about it and some didn't. But they were all free. And some found it too hard to believe, so lived in this constant struggle and never experienced what was true for them. And that becomes our concern as Christians. Now, we have to say this. We have to say that the effects of the gospel in our life are powerful, but they're not automatic. Okay, because what does Paul do in, the, in this text? Well, from, from, from 1 through verse 10, he's talking about all the glorious things that God has done for us. Laying a foundation. You're new. You're changed. You're free. But in verse 11, what does he do? He switches over to how believers should respond to that truth. Because he wants them to know it, but he wants them to really know it. Okay, he doesn't want them just to simply to know it here. He wants them to know it here. In the place where your life comes from, Proverbs 4, right? Life springs from the heart. Paul's, Paul's desire, reprogram the heart. Get people to see who they really are in Christ. And so verse 11 and following, he gives a couple suggestions about how we can begin to live out this new life in Christ. And these are verses that I think will be familiar with to you. In the same way, Paul says... Count yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Now, what is Paul saying? These are just practical conclusions to this discussion about being dead and new. Dead and free in Christ. Okay, I think the first thing that Paul is saying here is this. Tell yourself this truth. Paul's writing to Christians, not to, not to unbelievers. He's writing to believers. He says to them, reckon yourselves in the same way. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. And the idea here is to, on a regular basis, recognize 
and own this truth. Deposit it in the account of your heart spiritually. Own this. Know this. This is by the grace of God. You see? Listening to what Jesus says. If you know the truth, the truth will set you free. Satan's lies, you can't be free. You can't have victory. You'll fall again. Ray Pritchard said it this way. He said, if Satan can keep us ignorant, he can keep us impotent and weak. So you see why he works the way he works? A few years back, when I had little girls in my house, we went to the Philadelphia Zoo. And my favorite part of that day, the most memorable part of that day, was going into the lion's den. Now, I think I was less fearful than Daniel, maybe, because okay? I knew those lions in there were what? In cages and behind bars. Now, we had a fascinating experience. I'll never forget this. For some reason, it was like the hour of roar when we were there, okay? Now, I went in there with absolute confidence that my three girls and my dear wife were safe. And then those lions started to roar, and what happened? I wanted to kind of check out the caging, all right, to make sure all the gates are locked and that everything is really secure. So what happens? In the analogy, I'm in there. I feel completely safe. I'm looking at these pretty little lions. Adoring them, people are flashing shots at them. And all of a sudden, they just, they cut loose. They shook the house, the den. My... Initial response was not, hey, everything's cool, it's fine. My initial response was it, was, it was intimidating. But here's the truth. I was absolutely and completely safe. They couldn't touch me. They couldn't harm me. But what could they do? They could roar and scare the stuff out of you, right? And that's what they did. And they intimidated. And they made their power known. And it had an effect. Until you remember. No. No. First, inst first instinct is what? Let's get the kids honey. Let's get out of here. <laughs> first instinct. And then you realize, no. We can stand here and enjoy this. And folks, what does Satan do? What is he? You know what Jesus said to his disciples? He sent them out to do ministry in the power of his name in newness of life. And they did it. When they came back, what did Jesus say to them? Jesus said, I saw Satan falling from heaven. He is a defeated foe. He is a caged lion. Still a powerful lion? Absolutely. Able to intimidate the children of God and to cause them to fear and to speak lies into their lives? Absolutely. And what do you need to remember? For you as a believer, he is a caged lion. He's a pet in the zoo. Well, you don't want to go into his cage and mess with him. You want to do everything you can to keep your distance. But he goes about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. You need to know that. You need to wreck it, to just, just rethink that truth. That lion that is scaring me right now and roaring is in a cage. He really can't touch me, but he can cause me to think that he can. All right? He can cause me to think that I'm vulnerable, that I'm weak, that I'm, I'm in a dangerous place when I'm really not. Okay, and that's the part that's important. Tell yourself this 
truth. In 1982, an unusual thing happened in the island of Guam. A Japanese soldier came out of the jungle. He had lived there 37 years since the end of World War II. Now think about this. Why? Because when the news of the Japanese surrender and the end of the war came, he simply could not believe it. He thought it was a ploy to destroy him. And so he lived as a, if you will, prisoner of war, in hiding, not enjoying freedom that was really and truly his. And may God help us as Christians not to live in that kind of fear, not owning, not reckoning, not putting in our account, in our heart, this truth. Reckon yourselves dead to sin, but alive, new, brand new in Christ. Don't let Satan bind you in sin. And remember that this change, this transformation is not a result of what you do. It's not a result of the spiritual disciplines. Those are good. It's not a result of accountability. That's good. It's not a a result of being in a small group. That's good. It's not what you do that frees you. It's who you know. That frees you. And this is Paul's emphasis, isn't it? Reckon yourselves united with Christ, in union with Him, in His death, in His burial, in His resurrection. That newness of life that you have in Him, in relationship with Him, is yours. And know that it's not something you can simply work out. It's something that you must first believe and then begin to work it out. Claim this truth in Christ. Dead to sin, verse 2. Having a new life, verse 4. 7. Free from its tyranny. You and I don't have to sin if we have trusted Christ and are indwelt by the Spirit. Second thing that he says in verse 12, in terms of reckoning this truth, he says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you would obey its evil desires. Which is saying what? It is possible that a Christian could be ensnared in the evil desires of sin. And what is Paul saying? Don't let it rain. How how would you state that? How would you put that, don't let sin rain into words? Something like this. Put up a fight against sin. Okay? But do it as one who is free in Christ. Okay? Speak back to the temptation. Right? I'm not going there. I'm not going to do that. In the name of Christ. Put up a fight. Don't do what sin says. Don't listen to his desires. Ephesians 6. Put on the armor of God so that in that day of temptation, what can you do? You can stand really, really in this new identity that is yours in the person of Christ. It means that victory is possible now in Christ. This week, I heard that there was a lottery ticket that is worth a million dollars. Okay, somebody owns that ticket. Somebody, I should say it this way. Somebody purchased that ticket. This week, that ticket expires. I don't know what the time frame is because I don't play the lottery. don't encourage it. Okay, that ticket is worth a million dollars. Somebody probably has it and doesn't know what it's worth. Which means what? The benefit or the value of that ticket 
will never be experienced, even though it may be a piece of paper sitting in somebody's pocket. When I heard that and thought about this, I thought, how many of us as Christians, is that not the reality of our lives at times? We have something of value, but we don't know it has value. Right? So we don't redeem it and experience the blessing and benefit. Folks, listen. You are new in Christ. The old man has died. Paul says, why would you let sin reign if you're free? You don't have to be bound in it. You have been freed from it by the power of God and by the grace of God. And then verse 13, here's what Paul says. He says, do not offer the parts of your body to sin. Now he gets very specific here, doesn't he? Talks about your body in verse 12. In verse 13, what is he talking about? He's talking about the parts of your body. Now think with me. With our lips, the sin of words. With our hands, the sin of what we do. With our bodily organs, the, the idea of sexual sin. With our eyes, the things that we look at that we shouldn't look at. With our hear, ears, the things that we hear that we shouldn't hear. With our feet that take us places that we shouldn't go. Do you see the connection? Don't offer the parts of your body as instruments of sin. Instead, yield your whole self completely to God. So here's the question. Is my body, that is the, the, the vessel in which I live, is it given to God? I'm on a daily basis reckoning with the fact that I am a new person in Christ. And I can live in victory and in joy over the power of sin because of what Christ has done. We are His hands and feet. By union with Him and only through Him can we experience change. Now Paul will obviously push this button later in Romans chapter 12 verse 1, right? He's going to say, I urge you therefore, brothers, in light of all of this truth, chapter 6 being part of it, give yourselves to God as those who have been made alive from the dead. Present yourself to God. So on a daily basis, what should the attitude of a Christian be? I'm new in Christ. I'm dead to the old way. I've been given a new life. There is hope for change. My life can be different. I can love the wife that I've struggled with loving. I can honor the parents that I've had a hard time honoring. I can get along with someone at work in the power of God. I can avoid gossip. I can avoid the lust of the eyes if I yield myself to God and, and deposit this ticket, this value that he's given. And realize that when Satan wars, I don't have to cave in. I may feel intimidated, but I make an adjustment. Remember who you are. Remember where you're standing. You're truly free. You don't have to be afraid. But it takes practical steps on our part. Own that truth. Give yourself to God. Give the parts of your body to God. Do it on a regular basis because the evil one goes about doing what? Looking for someone who is weak in their identity so that he can swallow them down and destroy them. And Paul comes to you and says, may it never be. How shall we that are dead to sin and alive in Christ live in sin? And what's the issue? Remember who you are. Remember your identity, your relationship with Christ. There is hope for change. That hope for change is found in union with Jesus Christ. It's not found in what you do. It's found in who you know. Who you know then does what? It begins to dictate what you do. Follow Paul's flow. Theology, 
that leads to practical living. All right? Doctrine that leads to behavior. Okay? And I, I just want Paul doesn't say, hey, do this, this, and this. No, he does not pump you up thinking, boy, I'm, I'm all that. He humbles you first. He calls you to dependence on who, and then he tells you what. The problem for many of us is that we think that if I do more of the what, the disciplines, okay, then I'll change. The truth is no. Recognize who you are in Christ. Recognize what Christ has done for you. Recognize that you are in union with him. He is your partner in Christian living by the indwelling power of the Spirit. That's why the doing of the what is possible. Let's see, what does religion say? Religion says reformation from the, from the outside in. The Bible says, oh no, that doesn't work. The Bible says from the inside out. One of the Wesleys wrote this hymn, Oh, for the thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of His grace. Jesus, the name that charms our fears and bids our sorrows cease. Tis music to the sinner's ears. Tis life and health and peace. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the phallus clean. His blood avails for me. Paul says, will the Christian go back to sinning, back to bondage? And Paul's response is, no, no, certainly not. May it never be what a ghastly thought. You are new in Christ. Live that identity. Own that identity. Reckon it to be true. And as you do, you will find you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Father, I pray this morning.